Welcome. You're listening to the Mac Observer's Background Mode. This is your host, John Marcellero, and this week my guest is the Chief Information Officer at the Consortium for School Networking in Washington, D.C., Susan Bearden. Susan, welcome to the show. Thanks, John. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. I have a special interest, as the listeners and readers know, in education technology. So let me introduce you first. You are the Chief Innovation Officer for the Consortium for School Networking, COSN, in Washington, D.C. Prior to that, you were a senior education consultant for several organizations, including COSN. And from 2016 to 2017, you were the Senior Education Pioneers Fellow for the U.S. Department of Education. And you also participate in the EdCheck radio podcast for the BAM radio network. And so that's Susan. You have a deep background in education technology. Yes, I'm also a former school uh, K-12 technology leader as well. So uh, yes, I've been in the field for a while. So before we get into some of the technical questions I have for you, I want to ask you about your background because you've had an interesting career transition. So uh, let, let me go way back and the way back machine here. What were your earliest career interests growing up? Uh, it's interesting. When I was really young, I actually wanted to be a veterinarian, which is not uh, what I ended up even majoring in college to do. Uh, my uh, college degrees as an undergrad are actually in English and music, viola performance specifically. And I have a master of music degree in viola performance. And that's actually how my professional career started as a professional musician. I uh, got a job right out of graduate school for the in the Jacksonville slow, Symphony. Slow down, slow down, slow down. I have a lot to ask you about that first. <laughs> okay. How did you get interested in music? You know, I played the violin, and I always had uh, piano and violin lessons growing up. And then uh, when I was in high school, my high school orchestra director started a chamber orchestra made up of the best string players between the two high schools um, that in my hometown. And he took one freshman from each school, and my best friend made it, and I didn't. And I was utterly devastated. And we were both violinists. And about halfway through the year, he suggested that if I switched to viola, I could play in the orchestra the following year. And they were doing a tour of Europe, and I really wanted to play in the orchestra. I wasn't initially much interested in playing the viola, but I agreed to make the switch. And How then does that happen? I, is that because the viola is easier to play or because you were better adapted to it? I'm curious about that. There just aren't as many viola players around. The viola plays uh, the harmony most of the time. So, mm-hmm. you know, you always think of the violins playing all the glamorous melodies in the orchestra. And the viola is... Uh, the equivalent of a tenor, like in a choir. So we don't, we play a lot of harmonies. And so it's not as glamorous as playing the violin. And it's a little bit bigger. And it's somewhat similar technique wise, especially when I was at the high school level. And so initially, I wasn't really crazy about switching, but I did it because I wanted to play in this orchestra. And then I discovered after switching that I actually liked the viola much better than the violin, which was completely unexpected. And uh, as I got more involved in uh, playing in this orchestra, I just became more and more interested in music. So when I uh, decided to apply to colleges, I graduated from Oberlin because they had a double degree program, and I was able to graduate with bachelor's degrees in both English and viola performance. That's a huge contrast to your later work. Yes, it is. <laughs> was, was, was there a parallel involvement in computers 
you know, desktop PCs or something like that in school, or did that come much later? That came much later. I actually uh, came of age just really before the computer revolution. I didn't have an email address until I had finished graduate school. And so my exposure to computers was relatively minimal. I remember uh, seeing a TRS-80 when I was in sixth grade, and we got to program (laughs) it to draw Christmas trees and do cool stuff like that. Uh, But that was, and we had an Apple II computer in my high school journalism class, but that was really my exposure to computers. I had a Tandy 1000 that got me through graduate school that I basically used for writing papers with the old floppy disks. And so I really wasn't exposed to computers uh, when I was in school. It really wasn't until uh, many years later that I uh, really became more exposed to technology, and that's when my interest in technology grew. What did you do right after graduation from Oberlin? So I went to graduate school at the Cleveland Institute of Music, and so I got a master's degree in viola performance. And then after I finished my degree, I got a full-time job playing in the Jacksonville Symphony in Florida as a violist in the orchestra. So that was my full-time position for two years. Is that the same as the Brevard Symphony that's in your bio? Uh, That's actually uh, the Brevard Symphony came a few years later. Mm -hmm. So what I did was I, I... Spent my two years in Jacksonville, and then I started a doctorate at Florida State University, also in music. And I just decided pretty quickly that academia was not my cup of tea, and I was kind of floundering trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life because I didn't want another full-time orchestra job. And then I served on the faculty of the summer music camps at Florida State and discovered completely by accident that I was really good at working with kids, and I enjoyed it. And so I talked to one of the other uh, counselors at the camp who was very encouraging uh, for me to get involved in education. And in Florida, I would they had a, an alternate certification program whereby, because I had a master's degree in my subject area, I could become a teacher and I had two years to finish various uh, education courses. So I uh, reached out to uh, someone that was recommended to me from the, from the music camp staff and They offered me a job as a strings and orchestra teacher in Brevard County, Florida. And that was how I started my career in education. (laughs) Now, the thing that piqued my interest in reading your bio was that while you were at the Brevard Symphony, you became their database administrator. I'm seeing the seeds of a transformation here. Yes, yes. How did you get involved in their as, as their database administrator? And what kind of database does a symphony orchestra have? Well, that's a great question. You know, the entire time that I was teaching, I was always very interested in technology, but I didn't have a whole lot of access to it. I was intrigued by how technology could be used to solve problems. But I, you know, I was a strings teacher. I was traveling between different schools. I didn't have much access to technology. So what I did was I went back to school to get a degree in IT. And so I got an associate's degree in database administration. And so that's, uh, at that time, uh, I was also playing in the symphony, in the Brevard Symphony, and they had an opening for a database administrator managing their subscription database. So in other words, their tickets, uh, managing their donors. And, uh, so, and so that was how I, that was my first kind of technical position. And they did, sort you, of did you have to understand business. relational databases and keys and yes, all I did. that stuff? Wow. And that's 
that I'll, was uh, my transition to technology. I'll bet it was your music, because I can't tell you how many guests I've had on the show and TMO staff who are expert musicians. And there's something I haven't figured out yet. There's a link between people who are have musical talent and people who are great with computers. Something there. I don't know what yes. it is. And, you know, I've known several other tech directors, actually, who were former music teachers or who had some sort of musical background. Uh, for me, it was always, uh, I think a lot of people don't always associate being a musician with solving problems, but being a professional musician in terms of learning how to play different pieces is definitely all about problem solving. So for me, that was where the connection was. It was uh, solving problems, uh, whether you're using technology or solving, learning a new piece of music was always very interesting for me. Yeah, problem solving is something that comes up in my wife's work in teaching programming, especially Python. Yes. Beginning programming students think that learning to program is like learning a foreign language where you just write code, but the problems that they're presented with and that they have to solve and they have to write code for are really problem-solving algorithms. And Absolutely. that requires some mathematical background. And so many students have difficulty in their beginning Python programming class because they don't have a problem-solving and mathematical state of mind. We'll get into that in the second half of the show. I want to ask you more about that. So um, next in your career, um, you were at uh, Holy Trinity Episcopal Academy. Again, more database work. How did you get there? Well, I was originally hired to be their student information system manager. A student information and education speak is basically uh, the database that manages all the student grades and attendance Mm -hmm. and all that kind of stuff. Is that in so Florida, I would, too? Yes. Yes, that was in Melbourne, Florida. And okay. so I was hired to be their database administrator. And then 10 months later, I was promoted to IT director, which was completely not a career path I had ever expected. Something or you welcomed? <laughs> were, you, were you full of trepidation or was that something you embraced? I was terrified at first <laughs> because... I didn't have my background. My technical background was in databases and not as a network administrator. So I didn't have a very strong background initially uh, in managing networks. And so that was uh, terrifying for me. But fortunately, I had a great mentor who, uh, Frank Houston, if you're listening to this, this is for you. He was the uh, VP of a IT service provider that the Holy Trinity used for managed services. And he really took me under his, my, under his wing and mentored me. And I tell people he taught me everything I know about IT best practices. So uh, that was how my career in school, K-12 IT information management was born. You know, I can't remember who it was, but I had a guest on the show previously who told me exactly the same story. She got into a situation where she was a little bit concerned about her technical level, and she had a great mentor somebody who believed in her and brought her along as opposed to giving her a hard time. And that makes all the difference. I mean, that can really launch a career. Absolutely. And I'll be forever grateful to him. And, you know, to this day, I'm still not a network engineer, but I know enough about networking to be able to talk to the network engineers and understand what they're saying and translate business needs or educational needs into IT best practice. 
And, and obviously because I was a teacher, I also had a lot of experience on the pedagogical side, which I think to be a successful IT leader in K-12, you really need to be able to understand and appreciate both because K-12 IT management is just a very different beast than any other industry vertical. Uh, it's very different and unique in some ways because you have so many users, many of whom are underage. Uh, so that's, and I'm, I'm, I actually feel like my unconventional background, so to speak, uh, really kind of helped me think outside the box mm-hmm. as an IT leader. I am so sure. Yes. I wasn't thinking just in terms of boxes and wires, but I was always, again, thinking, how can we leverage technology to improve learning outcomes, to inspire innovation, to to solve problems, uh, even within like the school from a business operations standpoint? I'm fascinated by the next entry in your bio. You ended up as a fellow at the U.S. Department of Education, working yes. under President Obama. Fascinated by that. Tell me all about that. Yes. Well, that was a wonderful opportunity. I had the opportunity to have a one-year fellowship at the U.S. Department of Education in the Office of Educational Technology. And that was such an incredible opportunity. It was such a huge switch because obviously I had no federal government experience before um, I got the position. And, you know, I came from being a very grassroots, you know, school-based IT administrator at a private school with about 850 students. So all of a sudden working for the federal government where you're talking about uh, education and education technology policy affecting the entire country. So what was really unique about that experience was I kind of felt like when I went to Washington, my goal was I always wanted to help connect policymakers in the field, because so often I feel like there's such a a huge disconnect between uh, policymakers and what's happening on the ground. And I think that's true in education. I think it's true in a lot of fields, but I felt it was very true in education. And so I felt that that experience has really given me a very unique perspective and that I can definitely understand education technology kind of from from the building level, from the teacher level, from the classroom level. But yet I also have this kind of 30,000 foot policy view of education Mm. technology at the national level. So it was just a fascinating opportunity. And I got to, you know, do all sorts of cool things and uh, go to events at the White House. And uh, I led the development of the, of the, I led the updates of the federal government's K-12 IT infrastructure guide. So, I mean, I got to do all sorts of really amazing things when I was there. It was a really neat experience. Cool. 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 So let's jump forward a little bit. You are now the CIO, Chief Innovation mm-hmm. Officer for the Consortium for School Networking in Washington. I had never heard of that organization. What do they do and what do you do for them? So COSIN is a membership and advocacy organization specifically for K-12 IT leaders. And I was actually a member of COSIN when I was a technology leader in the field and had been to several of their conferences. And so after I left the U.S. Department of Education, I was doing consulting work and had the opportunity to do some consulting for COSIN. I was their digital equity project director and also did some uh, project management work with Google on their rolling study halls project, which is an initiative, a pilot initiative that installs 
Wi-Fi on school buses in select districts around the country and also provides funding for a tutor to ride the buses with the students and help them with their homework. So that was kind of my connection with COSIN. And then the, the CIO position opened up and I started that last September. So it's been a very exciting journey. Cool. Well, our timing is perfect. We've come to the end of the segment one, uh, some background on your career. In the second half of the show, I want to uh, chat with you about EdTech in general and some of the modern issues in EdTech. But first, we have to take a commercial break. Folks, we'll be back in 60 seconds. I'm chatting with Susan Bearden. Stay with us. Hi, this is John Marcellaro with the Mac Observer. With all the recent news about online security breaches, it's hard not to worry about where our data goes. Making an online purchase or simply accessing our email could put private data at risk. As I've explained before, you're being tracked by social media sites, marketing companies, and your mobile or internet provider. Not only can they record your browsing history, but they often sell it to other companies who want to profit from your information. That's why I'm taking back my privacy using ExpressVPN. ExpressVPN has easy-to-use apps that run seamlessly in the background of your computer, phone, or tablet, your iPad. Turning on ExpressVPN protection takes only one click. ExpressVPN secures and anonymizes your internet browsing by encrypting your data and hiding your public IP address. Protecting yourself with ExpressVPN costs less than $7 a month. Also, ExpressVPN is rated the number one service by TechRadar and comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee. So if you ever use public Wi-Fi and want to keep hackers and spies from seeing your data, ExpressVPN is the solution. And if you don't want to hand over your online history or your, to your internet provider or data resellers, ExpressVPN is also the answer. So protect yourself online today and find out how you can get three months free at expressvpn.com slash BGM. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com forward slash BGM for three months free with a one-year package. Visit expressvpn.com slash BGM to learn more. And thanks, ExpressVPN, for being our sponsor. I'm chatting with the Chief Innovation Officer of COSN, Susan Bearden. So one of the things I, that stood out in looking at your uh, bio was the, uh, your focus on uh, teaching and writing about digital citizenship. Tell me about that. So digital citizenship is basically, it's, it's, it's an umbrella term that uh, com- com- encompasses a number of different areas, but it can most briefly be defined as basically uh, teaching students to use technology ethically and wisely. So digital citizenship education can encompass everything from cyberbullying prevention to uh, internet safety and you know privacy, helping students understand how to uh, stay private online, to helping uh, them learn how to set boundaries with the use of technology. Interesting. When I thought about digital citizenship, I thought more about learning technology and being a good, astute, uh, learned citizen. But you bring up important issues with um, cyberbullying and security and safety and wisdom online. I often say that you can't learn how to use the Internet by reading the Internet. And so, <laughs> Yes, that's a good, I like that. So teaching digital citizenship is sounds like it's all of those good things that teach people how to have perspective, how to understand quality and, and provenance and authenticity of news, too. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Digital literacy is an important component of a digital citizenship. 
Um, and you've written a book, Digital, Digital Citizenship, a Community-Based Approach. Is that where you kind of wrap it all up? Yes. Yeah, so basically, in my book, I kind of give a basic overview of digital citizenship. And it's it's intentionally a short book. It's, it's not an academic tome. It's uh, maybe 65 pages, and it's geared towards busy school leaders to give them just a basic understanding of what digital citizenship is, what are kind of the major focus areas of digital citizenship, and also to explain the importance of when you're teaching digital citizenship in a school setting of understanding that it's not a one and done uh, kind of thing. It's not where like you do a assembly on cyberbullying and you're done. You don't have to talk with kids about cyberbullying anymore. It's about how taking a community-based approach to teaching digital literacy and digital citizenship, where you're educating not just the students, but also the teachers who, you know, very often didn't grow up with these technologies and uh, don't know a lot of, you know, may not themselves uh, know a lot about, for instance, how to keep their information private online. And also helping to educate parents, because that was my experience, is that you know, for most parents and things are changing now, but for a lot of parents, you know, they didn't, these technologies didn't necessarily exist when they were growing up. So, so often, so much of our parenting is based on kind of what, what we experienced as a child. And it's a completely different ball game now for, for parenting in the digital age. And I find so often that parents are hungry for information and uh, looking, you know, they want to be good, good digital age parents, but they don't necessarily know how. And so I feel that educating parents is an important component of educating students because I don't think it takes a village to educate a good digital citizen. I don't think these kids can I don't think kids can learn or can hear about the basic principles of digital citizenship from enough places, from enough adults in their lives. And the more that we can kind of educate the entire community, the better off our kids will be. Is that book, Digital Citizenship, equally valuable to parents in addition to educators? So because it outlines the basic tenets of digital citizenship and why why they're important. Uh, you know, I think a lot of people, for instance, uh, for instance, take online privacy. I think a lot of people don't understand uh, how, for instance, why the minimum age to use social media is 13. A lot of people I find most people don't know that it's because of COPPA, which is uh, the Children's Online Privacy and Protection Act, which is a law uh, that uh, over or that actually it, it actually impacts technology vendors that target web services or technologies to students under the age of 13. And a lot of uh, social media platforms don't necessarily want to comply with all of COPPA requirements. So they just say the minimum age to use our social media platform is 13. And that way, if you sign up and you check a box saying that you're over 13, uh, you uh, don't have the, the same privacy protections that are afforded to younger children who are using technologies that are specifically geared towards them. Most people that I talk to have no idea that that's why the minimum age to use social media is 13. They just think it's some magical age when children are suddenly mysteriously mature enough to use social media. And that's not the case. It's really about protecting kids' privacy and uh, protecting them from online marketing, basically. So a lot of parents, they don't know this information. And I think it's important because a lot of times parents will make information, will make decisions about allowing their children to access different technologies or social media platforms at various ages without understanding 
uh, without being able to make an informed decision because they don't understand uh, all of the implications. At the Mac Observer, we've run across parents who didn't know that there are parental limitations in the iPhone. Yes, parental control. absolutely. It's yes. so easy when you are a techie person to assume that everybody knows the same things you do, that knowledge that you take is commonplace and something that you say, well, of course, everybody knows this. Well, no, actually, most people don't know this information. They don't know about that. So, and that's why, that, again, why I think that parental education component is so important because people don't know what they don't know. And so how can we educate them to help them be better digital age parents? I want to revisit something that you mentioned a little while ago. Um, something that my wife and I have become acutely aware of. And here's the sentence I have in my question list. What shall we do about low-paid K-12 to teachers who are expected to be very computer savvy? Is there something that can be done? You know, that's a great question because there's kind of two aspects to using technology in education. There's the actual skill set of knowing how to understand tools. So in other words, knowing how to use, say, Office 365 or Google Docs or uh, knowing how to use different platforms. And then there's also the pedagogical component of how to implement technology in meaningful ways in the classroom. And it's not enough just to throw a cart of Chromebooks at students and say, have at it. Okay, we're implementing technology in the classroom in meaningful ways. That's not the case at all. And it's important that school systems provide their teachers with professional development, not only on the technical aspects of how to use these various digital tools, but also on how to really incorporate them into instruction in meaningful ways. And those are related but different skill sets. Yeah, those of us who are in the columnist and and technical writer industry spend all day learning about tools and technologies And I imagine there are many secondary teachers who might understand how to use a computer, but feel uncomfortable with providing assistance and counseling and advice about how to use the Internet. I think that's a problem. Yes. And that's where, again, it's important to educate teachers when we're talking about digital literacy and digital citizenship. In order to be able to instruct our students, teachers have to understand this stuff, too. And again, it's not necessarily something that they grew up with. Or just like a lot of the parents, they may not know what they don't know. So it's important that that we really take a very holistic approach to support providing supports for educators to help them really learn how to use technology tools in meaningful ways. So it's not just a, a, a case of filling out a, a digital worksheet, you know, that used to be used to use a pen and paper and now you're filling it out online. That's not meaningful use of educational technologies. That's not using technologies actively to create and collaborate and to, you know, edit media and uh, to communicate with other people. Those are really more active uses of technology. And that's, that's really what we're talking about when we're talking about meaningful use of education technologies in the classroom. It's not just, like I said, it's not just enough to Give kids a Chromebook and say, okay, do a little online research. Okay, you're using technology. Hooray. It's not it at all. So you moderate two education technology-related Twitter chats, and you also participate in a radio show on Band Network. Are these some of the topics that you've been discussing, 
or are there other topics that our listeners might want to hear about that you've been chatting about lately? Absolutely. Well, I'm one of the co-founders and co-moderators of EdTech Chat, which if our, any of our listeners would like to join us, we meet on Twitter every Monday night at 8 p.m. Eastern, and we are discussing all things education technology related. And our topics have ranged the gamut, everything from what constitutes meaningful education technology use to what are your favorite tools to use in the classroom to how do you make the most of, of education technology conferences. Uh, there's a very active community of educators who use Twitter as a professional learning network. And that's really how EdTechChat got started because at the time it's been almost six years, believe it or not, there were no specific education chats about education technology. And we felt that there was a need and the chat took off and became very popular. So it's a great community. We have everyone from pre-service teachers to seasoned uh, professional uh, technology leaders to teachers who've been who've been teaching for 20 years, to ed tech vendors participating in the chat. It's a really interesting mix of people. And they come, it kind of changes the flow of the, the people who participate change from week to week, depending on the topic and kind of the vagaries of people's lives. But it's really been a fascinating experience for me. And it's I feel like it really helps keep me grounded to what's happening in the classroom. Sounds like a great watering hole. And there's an app. Let's see if I can pronounce it right. Tweet, yes, tweet me. Tweet me. Yes. <laughs> um, we actually just recently pulled it off the market, but Tweet me was available for several years. It was a mobile app I developed to teach educators how to use Twitter, specifically to develop professional learning networks, or how to build, how to build an online community of practice where you are uh, interacting with other educators to you know, share ideas and best practices and ask questions and get professional support. You said and it was off the market. What, what happened? It is, it is now, uh, mainly it was just, uh, there are costs associated with maintaining an app in the store, uh, in the Google, in the Apple and the Google play stores. And it just, after it had been on the market for several years, it was just, you know, it was a 99 cent app. It wasn't, it was, you know, it was never going to make uh. me rich. <laughs> Yeah, business about going to the bottom of the barrel in the app store with 99 cent apps. It's a long story. I'm sorry you got caught up in that, too. But it was great running. I had a lot of educators who tell me that it really helps them uh, build their professional learning networks. And it was a very rewarding experience for me. It was definitely a passion project. It was just something that I was so passionate about because I felt like my experiences on Twitter had been so positive and had such a tremendous impact on me professionally and personally. Uh, so that was uh, really kind of the genesis behind Twitch Me. It had a great run. I want to ask you some global kind of high-level questions now because um, I'm up to my ears in artificial intelligence. And, um, and so... Um, and, and, and let me start off with this, with this question. Um, it, it's become acutely aware to me that the high schools, at least in Colorado, are spending a lot of time helping their students pass certain kinds of tests. But in terms of developing technical skills that are immediately usable in college, like programming and mathematics, there is possibly a problem. Should most kids be learning programming in, in high school? 
or do you have do you think that there are avenues for technical careers without being technical I think it's helpful for students to at least be exposed to programming in school they may not become software developers but I think understanding the basics of how technology works and kind of what's under the hood is immensely valuable. I think those problem-solving skills are immensely valuable. You know, and I think back to my career where I wasn't really exposed to computers in school. And what if I had been? I mean, I, I have absolutely no regrets about the unusual career path that my life has taken, but what if I had been exposed to uh, computer science at a younger age? And so I think it, I think it's important that to, to provide kids the opportunity to at least be exposed to it, even if they don't pursue it as a career. Okay. Next. I'm, on, I'm always fascinated by software tools and technology that can aid in instruction. Uh, I see lots of games in the app store that claim to teach. I see websites that are very technical but don't have a lot of pedagogical um, expertise. Tell me about what I've been missing. Are there, are there software tools and technologies that are helping students learn in the classroom that I have overlooked? Yes. My favorite tools are those that allow students to create, use technology actively. And when we talk about active technology, we talked about uh, using technology to create, to collaborate, to communicate, to code, versus passively consuming technologies or using mm -hmm. drill-and-kill apps. And so often, a lot of what you see as apps that are touted as being, quote, educational are really drill-and-kill apps. <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. Those are the ones that I have um, my doubts about. Yes. Right. So for me and my favorite technologies, and I'm, it, it's, it can be any, it can be on any platform. I mean, you can do amazing things with both Google G Suite and Office 365. It's really about teaching students how to use technologies in active ways, and whether that's collaborating with students on another project, or whether that's uh, using tools to uh, create videos themselves or to actually create coding projects. Those are the kinds of really meaningful education technology tools that I'm a fan of. Okay, next question. Jackpot question. Do you think AI robots will replace teachers in the next decade or two? No. Why not? Uh, because... You know, it's one thing when you're talking about children, so much of how children learn and, and is a, it's a social activity. It's about building relationships with kids. And I think that AI can provide, can be helpful. I think there's a lot of potential with AI to, you know, whether you're talking about uh, you know, platforms that maybe provide like targeted content to students based on, you know, they might uh, you might determine like where they're struggling in a particular subject like math and help provide targeted contents to help uh, reinforce their skills in that area. That's a potential use for AI, but that's not a substitute for actually engaging in social learning uh, with other students and with teachers. And I know there are lots of folks who are really 
hyped up on the thought of technology as being the thing that's going to save education. And I'm going to tell you right now that anyone who tells you that technology is the solution to raising test scores or to uh, solving all of our education problems is either severely misinformed or intentionally not telling the truth because technology is a tool. It is not the solution. It is a tool and it can be an incredibly powerful tool when leveraged by a knowledgeable, uh, educated teacher who, who, who has a strong background in pedagogy, who can really use technology to allow students to learn in ways that weren't possible before. But that's a far cry from sitting st- kids in front of a computer screen all day and, you know, having them, you know, do drill and kill apps that, you know, based on what the computer algorithms say they need to learn. So that is why I don't believe AI will ever replace teachers. I think it can enhance the educational process, but it's not going to replace teachers. Let me see if I can recap. Young students learn in a social environment and train to work in a social workplace, and they have to be trained in a social way by human beings. Yes. Okay. I've been educated. <laughs> I'll get off my soapbox now. All right. Now let me ask you one more question. We're just about out of time. We only have another minute or two. Are you familiar with, you may not be, are you familiar with how Apple is doing in education? I hear all sorts of mixed stories. Uh, in some districts, the Chromebooks have taken over and Apple's out of the picture, not meeting the needs of the, um, of the school system. In other cases, mostly touting by Apple, I hear about a few success cases, especially Ohio State, and the use of iPads. So um, do you have any perspectives on how Apple is doing? Yes, I think Apple makes some great products, and there are schools that are leveraging Apple products in incredibly meaningful ways. And there are also schools that are leveraging Google tools and Chromebooks in incredibly meaningful ways and schools that are leveraging Windows devices in incredibly meaningful ways. Again, I'm platform agnostic. Mm. I have both a PC and a MacBook and uh, an iPhone and an iPad. So I truly um, do believe in being platform agnostic. So yes, I, I think there are some schools that are doing really tremendous work with Apple products. I do think that with the iPad, they lost a lot of advantage. And I'm talking from kind of a tech director's perspective, because when the iPad first came out, they're very difficult to manage and you needed third party um, MDM software in order to manage them at scale. And I think that's an area where Google really beat them to the punch with Chromebooks. As, I, as someone who has managed both, mm-hmm. I can tell you that uh, when I was in the field, this was a few years ago, Chromebooks were super easy to manage uh, from a tech director standpoint, whereas the iPads were more difficult. Things have changed since I was in the classroom, and I think that Apple has made a lot of progress um, in how they use apps. But I think that was I think that was a challenge for Apple, and I think that was one area aspect of education technology uh, where uh, Google did was ahead of them in terms of the ease of use of their, their products. Okay. Well, that's the list of my questions and we're out of time. That what a coincidence. (laughs) And so we're (laughs) going to have to wrap it up. I want to thank you for uh, telling us about your career story and your tremendous transition that you made in your life and also your perspectives uh, uh, on digital citizenship 
and uh, your work on educational technology. It's been a pleasure having you on the show and hearing your, your thoughts. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for having me, John. Tell the listeners how they can contact you if they wish. Probably the easiest way is on Twitter. I'm at S underscore Bearden on Twitter. You can also find me on LinkedIn and uh, my email address at Cosin is sbearden at cosin.org. So uh, please don't hesitate to reach out. Great. And listeners, uh, take advantage of all these resources that she, that Susan has provided during the show. It's great stuff. And I want to thank you for coming by and hope you enjoyed the show. You've been listening to the Mac Observer's Background Mode. We'll see you again next week.